Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot Grapeseed extract and CoQ10 support your cardiovascular health. Visit radiobeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30 day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Paul Williams. Welcome to the show. Hey, mate. This is where, this is where, yeah, now, now Paul Williams, everyone will be like, who's he? The guy who wrote the thing, Alexis Malone. Because um, I changed my name from Paul Williams. Yeah. I mean, Paul Andrew is my, Paul Andrew Williams is my full name. Yeah. And there was already the Paul Williams of Bugsy Malone music fame. Um, so my short films were all by Paul Williams, and then when um, we wrote, when we did London to Brighton, it was like, actually it should be Paul Andrew Williams. Well, welcome to the show. And as you've already alluded to and suggested, we are talking about your movie from two thousand six, London to Brighton, which has uh, made its made itself known on Amazon Prime, which prompted me to say hello to you in the in, in the internet. And here we are talking and looking at each other, which is kind of a, that feels almost like normal come 10 months into a pandemic. I'm seeing, yeah. Um, well, we probably would be over a table at some, if we were doing it. Yeah, I'm, da- I'm, I'm, I'm now chomping at the bit now to be sat opposite somebody where they've got a microphone in their hand and I've got one in my hand and we talk. It's like, that would be amazing. Yeah. Um, but we're not, so we're going to make the best of it we can. And we're going to talk about the writing and making of your film, London to Brighton. Mm. He's had a girl here. Find out who she is. I'm, I'm right in thinking that the, the starting point of the film is that the short film royalty is is where it comes from. Yeah, no, I mean, um, the way the, what it came from was I'd already started, as I said, I used to be, I said to you before, but I used to be an actor and I did a film that was set there. Um, I sat around King's Cross called A Kind of Hush. Yeah. About 97. And I remember being doing the film and we were playing these, uh, we were playing um, homeless rent boys. Yeah. As, um, and it was all about abuse and stuff like that. But anyway, I just remember like looking at who was in it and then looking at the reality in King's Cross. And this is back in the day when it was shit. Mm. And, and um, thinking, well, that the film is not that. That is the reality of this King's Cross, and it's not the same picture that I'm looking at here. Mm. 
And it sort of made me think, you know, that's what I'm interested in, in the people who are involved in, re- in the reality of King's Cross. Right, okay. And um, anyway, years later, I made a couple of short films and, and music videos, and it was like, okay, let's, I've got this idea, set over one night, and it's just about this girl and she's got to make some money and 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 what and basically the story of, of royalty. And we we said we're gonna do it properly, we're gonna pay people properly. So we had 25 grand and we were gonna shoot over a week, and obviously we were shooting on 16 mil, and we're gonna do it like a proper production. Hmm. Uh, that was when we got Wellington films involved. And yeah, we set it up. But for me, it was all about the acting and rehearsing and characters and we you know we basically we had auditions and then once we cast these people who apart from Lorraine and another one Chloe we literally just that you know they're all unknown Mm. and you know we did about five days rehearsal for a short film so we rehearsed as long as we shot it that's a long time isn't it yeah and then and then we shot it over a you know, over a week in Kings Cross or over in nights. And from there, you know, that's sort of, the, that's the thing that got me attention first of all, I got me an agent and then, you know, it went to a lot of festivals and it got me. So that did well. And it was, I, I was, you know, obviously really still trying out working what to do and how to, I had no, you know, still, you know, um, what's the word? Finding how, how you made shit. <laughs> do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And then, and that was it. And I never, ever thought about doing a story about that ever again. Right. Okay. So once that had been done, I just put it to bed, didn't think about it. And, you know, and it sort of did, you know, people thought it was very good anyway. People thought the film was good, which was, gave me the confidence to continue trying to do stuff, if you like. Yeah. And anyway, I was trying to get a film called The Cottage made. And the love nor money with the film council, everything, we were all sort of, I couldn't get anywhere. No one would give me any money because I'd not made a feature film before. So I was completely, I wasn't trusted to do it. And anyway, after a while, I was so sick of not making something Mm. and not being believed to do it. I had this idea, just a, just a brief, if you know the film, I had the scene in my head where Joanne and Kelly go to um, the paedophile's house and they walk in and it's, and I had that scene in my head just of these two people and I thought, actually, what if that was Kelly? From royalty, the character, from royalty. And I said, okay, so then I sort of had a very rough idea in my head of what the story was. And then I literally was staying, living with my parents pretty much at the time. Yeah. And on Friday afternoon, I started writing. And then on Monday, I had like a 75-page script. And that was very close to what we ended up filming. Was it made easier by the fact that you you've already done this film where you showcased who Kelly was, and then having decided she's the the woman that one of the women that's there, did that give you a sense of setting and stuff because you had the character? 
No, to be honest, not really. I mean, obviously, I use those two characters. Um, yeah. Derek and uh, Kelly. Mm. But to be honest, I'd never had no idea that that would be the case. So I just, it was more like the story just came from. And originally, I wrote the story in a linear form. Mm. So there was no flashbacks or anything like that. And then someone read it and gave me a bit of it and just, you know, why don't you start it there? Mm. I thought, okay, well, that's, that's a good idea. And I swapped it round and then, you know, I showed it to Lorraine, who played Kelly and Johnny Harris. And I suddenly thought, right, that's it. I'm going to make it. <laughs> and I plucked 60 grand out the air, right? Um, because I'd made short films for 20 grand, 25 grand. And I thought, if you can do three weeks worth of short films, mm. 60, I reckon we can shoot this film. And then I sent the script to Wellington Films, who made royalty, and said, look, we want to, I want to make this film. I'm going to make it 60 grand. Do you want to do it? And they were thinking about it. <laughs> they had to think about it. And then the other guy who I was working with on the cottage, I was like, do you want to do it? And his words were, I'm on the dole, so I might as well be on, might as well be do this one for free. <laughs> So basically, yeah, and I went to um, a business angel of, who'd sort of helped, a fr- who was a friend's dad, who was an ex-stockbroker mm. and very wealthy. And he'd given us a grand here and there to make short, short films and so on. Yeah. And I remember going to him and saying, he was going to the theatre and I met him at the National Theatre when he was with his wife. And I said, look, mate, I'm going to make a short, I'm going to make a feature film. I need 60 grand. If you can get your rich mates to raise that money, five grand here, a grand here, whatever, then I will give them half the film. And he was like, all right. <laughs> and he gave me a check for, for 300 quid, I think, at the time, which was basically to cover my rent. Yeah. And then I said to the producers, I said, right, we're going to make this in on this date. And whether we've got five grand or 10 grand or 50 grand or whatever, we're going to make it then. Wow! So it was like it was like that classic, uh, the classic the thing we see now on lots of sort of guru things. You went, I, I, I'm self actualizing it, and I'm gonna. That's going to be what's going to take me forward to do it now. Come what may. <laughs> yeah, I mean the thing is, it was very much like look, I because it, I genuinely think you know, there was lots of people who, and I knew them at the time from short films. Everything they would always be like, I've got this great idea, mm. got a great idea for a feature. I'm going to make that one, mate. And so people in the industry, or my peers at the time, who were, you know, on the same level as me, everyone just said it, everyone heard it, and no one else ever thought anything of it. Mm. So the minute you say, we are making this bit of the film, and these are the dates we're making it, and suddenly it's a, it's a, it's a real entity, do you know mm. what I mean? Yeah. And in a way, it's like once that avalanche starts coming down the hill, is going down the hill and whatever it'll be at the bottom, you know, or whatever speed it, it, whatever it's, it's, it's actually happening. So from there it was right. No, we, you know, we made the thing of that. This is the budget. No one's getting paid a single penny. People get paid their train fare. And if you had to sign on, you could get time off to sign on. <laughs> um, and yeah, and that's and we just went for it. 
and basically anyone who did it, the people that the crew and stuff like that were pretty much all stepping up to a first time as a DP for mm. a feature, first time as this, first time as that. So we were all incredibly green. Just just rewinding a second to that idea of you powering through that first draft and then getting some feedback on it. Um, what what while finalizing that part of the process was was the main storytelling challenges then? Once you'd done this like linear version and you, the suggestions were, you know, why not try this, try this, that non-linear thing? How, how did that manifest itself as a, as a kind of screenwriting challenge? Well, well, I mean, I didn't consider myself a screenwriter. Okay. I just, you know, I don't understand, and still not now, still I don't have any formula or anything in terms of how you write. Mm. It's always just... That's why I mean, like, I struggle with the terminology of what a script would be in terms of genre and things like that. Because I'm like, well, I'm, all, in my head, all I've got is I've got this story, and what is? Do I like it? Do I believe it? Do, and if someone's got an idea, and this person was was really was in development and was nothing to do with ever making it, mm. but he just offered it as a suggestion, and you know, we'd sort of been around the houses with various you know, real funding bodies on the cottage and just wasn't getting anywhere. And so I was determined to say that I'm going to, I'm going to make it and I don't want to make, don't want development notes, don't want anything like that. I want to see it. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, you know, that's whatever. But and you know what? It obviously, I, I think development can obviously provide some great notes and, and really make things work but I also think they can just fucking shit your film up no they can kill it that's for certain there's no doubt about it you can uh, you can end up pursuing perfection which is never the friend of anything creative no, but also you're, you're only working on someone else's opinion aren't you do you know what I mean yeah, no yeah. you only need two contra- contradictory opinions don't you and then suddenly you're in you're in a stasis aren't you if they've got equal importance but also I'm like you know I don't want to make you know I want to make my film and so the agenda for me was to make my film, and I, and with the best will in the world, everyone's got their own agenda. If it wasn't, if that wasn't, if that was just basically you were making your film, and obviously the decisions you were taking were, you were in control more than you than you ever thought you would have been before. Um, so that decision to sort of move the story around gives us, and I should I should probably say we said at the beginning we are talking, we are going to be giving spoilers because I'm going to be asking specific questions about stuff in the film. So. Um, for for people that have seen London to Brighton and want to know more, this is the podcast to turn in turn up for. If you've not seen London to Brighton and you're enticed, having listened to this already, then go find it on Prime Video and uh, give it a watch. Then come back because um, as a starting point, and this plays into a conversation we had before about about TV shows. Um, you throw us into the story in the in the opening sequence. I mean, we've got no idea what's going on, who these people are. And yet you're transfixed. And that's really a really powerful way. And it and it's not the kind of, it's not the classic kind of, oh, it's a cold opening just to make sure you know what genre movie you're in. This is like the train's left the station. You better get on. You better get on and show, shut the door. Yeah. 
Do you want some food? We'll get you some food, all right? Go in there. Stay in there. Don't open the door to anyone. I promise, I will. Well, obviously, that's in the edit as well. You get to the edit and go, that's how it's just like, you know. The, you know, you, I always think you write, you have a film that you write, you have a film that you shoot, and then you have a film that is edited. Mm. But the idea of coming into that toilet, which you shot on the first day, and us knowing, not having a fucking clue what's going on, but knowing that there's, you're just like, what is it? Uh, yeah, I've got my back to the day of doing that day. Wow. But you can see it on YouTube. There's like a 22 minute making of. Mm. I mean, obviously, again, you're. I'm obviously don't need to tell you. Obviously, you're right. But in terms of that, that things changes once you get into the edit. But but even just watching it again last week, it was it was the sense of um, like, who's Derek? Is Derek dead? Is Derek the dead? Is is he alive? I mean, none of that's clear. You're hearing names. And you're not sure who anybody is because they're not giving these. They're not. You're not giving us their names up front. And so you're, you, you as an audience member are kind of thrown around as much as the principal characters are moving forward without really knowing where they're heading. Beyond, we need to lie down. We need to lie low for two days. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? I mean, I think for me that is, you know, a lot of the time you get in development, people say, "I was reading this bit and." I didn't know who these people were. And I'm like, but you do know who they are when you find out in five pages. Uh, and they're like, yeah, yeah, fine. So we don't need to do anything to that. I'm like, so a lot of the time, it's like when you're watching the show with somebody mm. and you might have seen it before and they want to know what's going to happen. But what happens to him in the future? I'm like, well, just watch it. <laughs> and there's a, there's something about just watching it and, seeing where it takes you. I remember on, on the commentary for um, for Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino was asked about nonlinear storytelling. And he said, he, he described it as, he said, it's not nonlinear. He said, this is just the order I've chosen to tell you the story in, which I thought was kind of a nice way of describing it. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, yeah. I mean, he's, he, I mean, he's right. And I think that, um, obviously he's right, he's Quentin Tarantino, but... It was all, it was, you know, look, we played around with it in the edit when I'd written the script. It was mm. very, very choppy. And then you, you, when you were working in the edit, you go, actually, it's too much because now I'm tension dipping and, you know, so you need to sort of withhold it, you know, sort of you need to keep the energy and the tension up as much as possible. And if it means telling, putting scenes in a longer consecutive run, mm. then that's what, you know, that's what you have to do. So, We've got this explosive introduction of Kelly and Joanne, and then this the, the, there's this almost like reverent introduction of uh, Stuart Allen, who's our principal kind of antagonist, although he's not the only antagonistic force in terms of how they how 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 the how you might perceive the film. Um, Derek being probably the more antagonistic overall, um, but it's it's a it it it. it, it Having had all that energy thrown into a toilet, jumping on a train, et cetera, et cetera, then suddenly we're sat and it's like a portrait of um, Sam Spruill, isn't it? Stuart, what's happening? Stuart, what's going on? Stuart, what's going on? Get me a drink. It was always that idea of like, what's he looking at? What's, I don't know. I mean, this is this is that naive because I didn't go to film school. I just thought, you know I'm 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 interested. I'm looking at him going, but well, he's looking at something that's fucking pretty heavy. 
you'd use that that tool throughout the film, this idea of what are they seeing? You don't always let the, the audience in on it. You let the you let the imagination do all the work for you in a sense. Or do the hard do yeah. the hard work. That if you'd put it on camera, it wouldn't have been as effective. It's almost like wouldn't have been as powerful as what what the I mean you get and get and also there are little bits of information. <clears throat> you know, he's going, you know, he's had a girl here. And um, you know, so that would then obviously help you think back to you know what the, what the two girls are running away from. Mm. I just remember doing. I just remember being in that house, and obviously getting told off by everyone because we were going over for the 18th day running. <laughs> we're getting blood on the carpet. Well, no, God, I can't do that. Was that a house borrowed one, or was that a, 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 like a book of set? Yeah, basically, that house was the house of the business angel who was the one I met before, you know, met at the theatre and he was going to, he gave me the first bit of money. Mm. First bit of money. And basically he, um, the first, his house was the bedroom mm. and another of the investors, the house was the, was the downstairs. So we shot on two different days, um, two different houses. It was just bonkers, man. And also we didn't have a clue, man. We were just working out. Working out as we were going along. It had been a while since I'd seen seen London to Brighton when I went back to watch it, and like the first time I really, it's like I'd even I was paying you know full attention, and I'm, and then suddenly she's Kelly's not got a black eye, and I'm like, where am I now? And we're walking into you know we're going into Derek's place, and it's like, oh right, we're now we're now going back on ourselves, and suddenly I was like, okay, we're. And now, and I'm trying to think if actually I did make it. So if I, if, you know. You would like to think that it was a conscious decision, right? Yeah. To that the eye will be the tell. Well, the concept, the, the cut from scenes made you feel like it was continuous until you saw her, until her eye came into the, became, until it became a mid shot, as it I know. Uh, I, but, you know, obviously, as soon as you see she's not got a black eye, it's either in the future or in the past. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, you're like, okay, what's going on now? And suddenly, so we get this, this idea. So, Kelly obviously was is Lorraine Stanley who was in royalty, so that obviously made perfect sense in the casting. But obviously the role of Joanne is 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 the kind of the difficult part of the casting, given the subject matter of London to Brighton. So what 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 are your memories of of, of casting the Joanne role and, and and getting Georgia Groom for that role? Well, we basically obviously had no money. Mm-hmm. So we weren't paying anyone. We weren't, you know, we had I think we weren't really paying the casting director. And the cast and director, and obviously we're talking about needing to find a girl mm-hmm. whose parents would allow them to be in a film that would be depicting what we showed yeah. um, or what we inferred. Right? <clears throat> Indeed. And, you know, I went to, I went to look at, I went to Oldham to look at a kid. In a, basically, people just were throwing names. And then there was this workshop where I went to see uh, called the Carlton TV Workshop, where actually like Jack O'Connell and Georgia Groom and um, Samantha Morton and people like that had all been a part of. Right. And I remember watching, you know, we were doing auditions and giving them improvisations and stuff like that. And there was... I don't know what there was, but there was something about George, um, Georgia Groom. Then we got a load of people to come down and do like a read-through one-on-one. 
Mm. Georgia was just amazing. And she broke down and she was crying on spot. And I was like, what the fuck is this is insane? At this point, their mum had read the script and just thought it was a good part. You know, and Georgia, Georgia hadn't done any acting before, certainly not anything on camera. Blimey. And um, it was just a laugh to her. And um, it was really good to build, you know, there was something very cool about directing someone who didn't really go too deep into whys and hows and just sort of was very instinctive about how she did it. Was was there any need to get get them get her and Lorraine Stanley to form a relationship prior to shooting? Well, we had read through and we had rehearsals, so we had rehearsals, and in in those rehearsals, we were very much trying to do um, what's it called improvs. Hmm. So we basically did we were improvising all the scenes that weren't there that weren't in the film and. Hmm. Through that, we would, I would, you know, it, that and that was purely just so they had a sense of their character, but also so they got to fuck about with each other and sort of get things wrong and just, yeah, you're right, form some bond and then, and then what we all, what I always try to do, and it's much easier to do on a film, is have a get together before you start, so like a little rap party thing, but early on, but before, so everyone's got. Had a, pre-shoot party just so everyone has got something that they can talk about on day one <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 because obviously because not obviously at all but for anyone that's seen it listen to this the relationship as much as it's a protective one is a visceral one isn't it between Kelly and Joanne Kelly's oh. Kelly doesn't know what she's doing but she's doing it and Joanne hasn't got a Scooby-Doo what's happening at all in reality but they both have the vivid memory of what they've run away from your mum and dad now you're begging How much you got? Enough. What for a cup of coffee? Piss off. Let's have one of them. What's the magic word? Give me a fan, please. How old are you? Fifteen. Fuck off. How old are you really? Twelve this year. Have you got any money? You just told me you had money, you fucking liar. Who are you calling a fucking liar? You know, it's how, you know, one person who's culpable from her own circumstances um, is to blame essentially for the for the immediate predicament but also you know the fact that she then her mission is to save her mm. i think is really yeah, it's really it's really complicated isn't it but also you know i've got a, i've got a 13 year old boy and however old and grown up people think you know 12 year olds think they are they're just kids yeah. Yeah, the emotional intelligence you can't you can't bolt that on, can you? No, you don't get that from no, you don't. I think but but you know, you can be fooled by someone being cocky and brave and 
Yeah. But and then yeah, they're obviously still children. The sort of full-on sort of grooming scene is is really interesting in the sense of listening to the the language of Derek getting people to do what they can't possibly want to do voluntarily or not. Um is 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 like mad it's like sleight of hand. It's language that you've given him. Well, yeah, for which bit when he's with the girl at the beginning or whether he's with well, the two, there's two. There's the, there's the, you're the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. Now go in there and fuck me, mates. Um, as the kind of finish is like, what? <laughs> of which, as uh, for the eagle-eyed viewer, they will spot your lovely face in that room as uh, the door yeah, shuts. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, do you know what? I think in that scene, to give him, I, I'm sure that, because this is a scene very similar to that in royalty. Mm. What I think is that, that, that uh, I'm pretty sure that Johnny Harris came up with that I that thing of like giving her loads of compliments in the audition mm. royalty, yeah. And that was then it made its way into the film, and then that made it into the short, and then made its way into the feature. Yeah, because there's there's the taxi scene in the short where he wants her to do something. Then it's it's a fairly there's some similar ground in the diner scene, but obviously in the diner scene you're talking to a twelve year old kid with the same choice. And it's like, do you want some ice cream? And then it's like brilliant things that remind you that he's talking to a kid. Like, do you want some ice cream? And her face lights up. So the, we, we as the adults watching it are fully aware of the imminent danger and what this all does because of the earlier scene back at the apartment. And she just thinks, this guy's going to give me 100 quid to go and play with a guy for an hour. Because that's all. That's all. Those are the things that you can... Um, those are the things that you can understand. Hmm. The thing is, is that there's bravado that that gets you into trouble and the naivety of being a child like that and seeing only the big money, money, money without, you know, just not questioning things because you don't understand. That's probably one of my favourite scenes in it. Where's the wee bed in? I haven't got any. Are you on the streets? No. I have been, though. Shit, no. I think that one being at home. Yeah. Alright. 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 What's your name? Joanne. Derek. She's been out a couple of nights. Where have you been staying? She's just asked me all that. How old are you? Nearly 12. Do you want something else? Some ice cream or something? Huh? Mate, ice cream. But I, th- but I think that's one of the m- magic things about, about the film, as, as harrowing it is an experience to watch, the brilliance of seeing Joanne's character be a fighter who's clearly got chutzpah and wants to fight a corner, but she is at, every, at crucial moments always reminding us because of when it gets too much that she is a child and children need adults to trust. Yeah, well, I mean, she she says to him, she says to Joanne, uh, to Kelly in the car, will I have to kiss him? Oh, God, I, yeah. You know, 
<laughs> I mean, it's pretty dark, isn't it? And Caddy's like, yeah, probably. But it, because that I would imagine that would be the kind of conversation that she might have, what I've got to do. You know, and also she's with Kelly, who she's formed a little bit more of a bond with and can possibly be a little bit more vulnerable with. Now this is this is sort of flitting between the begin the setup and the and the end. Um and it wasn't until what rewatching it that I, I sort of I clocked the fact that when Stuart Allen gets Derek in the car to basically tell him what he needs him to do, I'm guessing in a way, Stuart's already decided what the fate of Derek is at that point. And obviously accent and you and you signal that to us by the surprise move with the cutthroat razor before he gets him out of the car. Who's the other girl? Her name's Kelly. What's happened? What have they done? I want those two girls. I'll find them. You better add. And then you're going to call me. All right, I will. Have you got my number? No. Get it off him. Find those two girls, and if I don't hear from you by this time tomorrow, you're a fucking dead man. Get out. I don't, you know, look, the whole idea of the fact is that that Sam's dad um, was he wasn't very nice mm. and was not was not very nice to Sam's character and and basically I think the idea of um, his dad being a paedophile it probably feels not so, so much revulsion that now is, you know, that, that that's why he's going to kill um, Derek. That's why I think he, you know, and that's why you're right, it's in his head. And I think the thing is, it's just complicated in terms of his relationship with his father, that, that he wants to seek revenge and find out exactly what happened. But he also knows what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, because he calls, he calls out Derek's character from the beginning of that conversation, doesn't he? He basically looks around where the locale is and says, these are your people, aren't they? This is you. Yeah, scumbags. Jumping to that, because that's, bec- weirdly, that, that uh, the, the, the scene in the car with, with Sam Shrell and, and Georgia is, is arguably, that's probably my favourite scene in the film, because I get the feeling watching it, it's almost like Stuart Allen, the character, is 12 years old himself. Part of the anger and rage at his dad is in his failed attempt to say sorry <laughs> to Joanne for having put her in that position. I think there's, 
just a mixture of everything of like why I think it's on the one hand knowing that he wanted someone to do that you know and it could you know it's open to interpretation it could be that she did it and he didn't do it it could be you're right that he'd been abusing his own son and what what he or what he got his son to do there's so many different things of what it could be and i think that obviously as an actor sam would want to know what it was mm. but it was always to talk about the confusion of you want someone dead and you want them dead all you know for a very long time but they're your father and the bond that is there through the law of being father and son ever prevents you from really imagining that could happen and then suddenly it does happen it's just a head fuck basically mm. but it, it, it but it came together brilliantly because you've you've seen this man who is the swan gliding on the lake and you don't see his feet ever and in that scene in the car is the first time you're seeing his feet go like billio you know again just thinking about you know we've shot that obviously we did night shoots at that point and yeah you know, this is at the, that that was towards the end of the film, and just being so exhausted. I never forget riding home or driving home with the sound guy, with all the windows open, <laughs> just doing whatever we could to stay awake uh, while we were driving. Because so, we where where was you? Where was that field? It was the produce one of the producers' mates owned the house and had land at the bottom and uh yeah let us in let us use it and obviously we didn't have loads of lights so we were just lighting things from the car headlights and pretend car headlights and oh, really? you know you watch it and it's you know it's grainy and it's out of focus and probably just looks as dirty as it did as it should do i suppose <clears throat> no no it does it does and 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 what uh, the, the the lovely touch to that whole sequence in the build up to it is the handing over of cash to Dave at the gate. Was that in the script or was that something that you thought, oh, this this, this is I can add something else in? Oh, what they give the what they give money to the old man? Yeah, he says, yeah, Dave, that's for you. And then they drive they drive into the field, and obviously Derek and um, Chum are going. Oh right, yeah. Do you know what? It's that it, that just I thought about that on the day. Because that is that was a real brilliant moment in in sort of in you know in a kind of big emotional moment that's going on. But he owned, the, um, yeah, that was the guy who's he, he we were using his drive, <laughs> and it was like, can you open the door for us? I think he had a limp. Yeah, because you've got because you've got a walking stick, and then you've got this yeah. in the car. We're seeing this from Derek and Chum's point of view, and they're going, "What's going on?" Which is obviously what the audience are asking as well. It's bloody brilliant. I just remember being in, and we were in uh, the car. <laughs> we were in the car with him, and the reason Chum was it was doing it was because Johnny couldn't drive. So that's, I think, that was one of the reasons why we had Chum in the script of royalty. Get out of town. Johnny couldn't drive, and anyway, so I just remember being in the back with him as they were filming and the, just the ground was shit and he just could not get up this hill no matter what and they were just improvising 
for ages. <laughs> uh, and so he's like, mate, fuck it, let's leave it. And you ain't going to get out there, right? Um, God, yeah. Well, jo- Johnny, Johnny being in, obviously Derek in the in royalty and and, and in um, in the um, in London to Brighton, um, much like the Joanne character, but for different reasons. What you get with him is the yin and yang between the moments where he's the powerful one and the moments when he's the weak one, and it's like he doesn't know what fucking day it is. Like all thick bullies, mm. you know. You, you know, like he's like bully. He's a bully, isn't he? And mm. the thing about bullies is, there's always going to be someone tougher, and someone that bully is scared of. Whether it's your dad or whether it's you know your older brother or your older brother's mates or someone, but he knows his place really. And there are a couple of times with Johnny where I, I thought of lines on the day. Mm. Um, and he was just like, well, I'm not sure, man. I'm not sure. Like, there's a scene when he's getting the gun originally, and he's like, I love this flat. Mm. He's looking at this flat, which is basically just a sort of normal flat, but it's just yeah. so far beyond it. What else am I going to fire out of it? I want it on me in case Stuart Allen comes after me. Mm. Killing myself. I stupid both and their stupid fucking heads getting me in this mess. You should just give them to Alan. Finish your coffee, I'm going back to bed. Make sure you bring it back. This flat. Lucky cunt. Well, it had serenity. It had in in terms of what we'd witnessed so far. That flat represented the first moment of almost serenity. Well, you know, he's got he's got a nice sofa, <laughs> mugs, and he was just like, and I said, the guy's wearing a clean bathrobe. Yeah, and I was like, you know, so when he says, uh. Yeah, when he's gone, it's like, yeah, you fucking these fucking nice out, you know. <laughs> and I, he, I had to really convince him to say it, and also when he's at, gets asked for the gun, if you're stupid enough to bring a gun, don't let me see it. Give it here, and then he says, "Can I have it back? It's not mine." Give it me back. It's not mine. I was like, that was that was one of the that was on again a lovely little. It's those dip, those rises and falls of of his character, which is so. It felt so real. And it's like, it's just like, you know, it's like, it is and is. It's like, man, I'm going to get in loads of shit. Just give it back at the end of the, whatever happens. <laughs> just the stupidity, you know? So when, when you were, in, so you were, you, you're driving home with the windows open, trying to stay awake. So how far into the shoot were you when you did that sequence? The no. sequence in, the, I mean, we must've been near the end. Right. I mean, we were shooting six days a week. Yeah. We were shooting, we were going over at least an hour. To a two hours a night. The food we were getting was because we couldn't really afford it. Were very small portions of food. Oh man! But it was the most rewarding experience ever. So, you know, God, we were fucking wait. I was just so tired. 
and just green. Can you, can you, can you, but talking to me now, can you, can you kind of almost like get into the headspace of just imagining that tired and going, oh, look, I'm not, thank Christ for that. Well, just to, you know, the thing is, you're making a film and back when you're not so, um, before you get cynical and, and bitter, yeah. right? You're always in a position where you're like, oh my God, we're making a film. What's great, isn't it? The first time you see someone fire a fake gun and you're like, no way. And it's, <laughs> you know, and when, you know, for me, it was like seeing, I know it sound wanky maybe, but like to see what I believe to be good acting mm. and people saying my words and it being like, you know, that believe these are great great performances and and it got to the point where you know obviously when people were doing the job it was like yeah it was they were doing it for deferrals mm. and then when some of the people were like you might actually make some money out of this <laughs> and you're like you see people have actually got a bit of faith in it that you know it feels you feel like we're part of something man because there isn't a hierarchy. There was not really a hierarchy. We were all very much working together as a team. No one getting paid. Everyone eating the same food. No trailers. No nothing. Everyone literally on the same level mucking in. Trying to, you know, work their way out. Work their way. Work out what it is to be make a film. <laughs> you know, and there was something about that that was quite special. Now, this is... None of us had made it. None of us were big and famous. None of us were, you know. Entitled to anything in the sense of the the discovery was everything about what you were doing because obviously if you've never done it before, then everything's, it's like mini, it must be, it must be like adrenaline runs all the time. You're kind of, oh, there we are. Like you say, we're firing a gun. That performance was fantastic. They're saying my words. Yeah, but and it's, but also it's, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's on, it, you got unaffected by the future of what your work could become. If you mm. like, you are purely in the moment. There is no real baggage. So you're not in a situation where you're really having to prove yourself to anybody mm. or you're not having to reboot re your career. You're not having to do anything. You're purely doing something for some, for the for the reasons of you know i really believe in what we're doing i really believe in this and uh, and what we're all sort of going for that was a com weirdly that was a conversation i had a, last year with mark jenkin who did bait where, yeah where he kind of got locked in this loop of not making films and he was he, in the end he just took very much like what you described yourself with this as he then took control of it and went we're going to make this film ourselves. And he went back to his 16 mil. He had a load of, uh, what do you call it, out of date, 16, black and white 16 mil, which was, he then hand processed it all. And so it all became him. It, he was in control of it. And um, but then obviously you're doing it then, aren't you? You're not, you're not beholden to anyone. And then it becomes, it becomes fun again, which is why you wanted to make films in the first place, because you thought it might be fun. As I say, when you've been in, when you, once you've been in the industry a while, mm -hmm. You're tainted. You're tainted by a lot of the shit that goes on. Whereas when you first start, it's all, it's, you know, it's very innocent, I think, because you're totally, the 
believe you can believe anything. You can believe whatever might happen might happen and and so on. But it's only when you've been in the industry a while and you suddenly there are people out there who might slag you off and slag your work off and other people might love it and you know and things might not work. Why in two why in two thousand and six was sixteen mil the right choice for shooting this movie? What we what would have been the option what would have been the options in two thousand and six? Oh, it was either do it on um I think it was someone mentioned doing it on video, which is a no no. Yeah. So the only option was doing it on sixteen mil. Yeah, because if you look at say, I don't know, twenty eight days later, which is two thousand two on Digivideo, isn't it? And and while that is good for that film, yeah. it does give it a date, doesn't it? As a as a look and feel. Whereas but not only that, it's an aesthetic which, you know, in a way, it's much, with all respect to Danny Boyle, it's a lot easier to get away with if you're Danny Boyle and you've already made films. True. Um, but not so, you know, that is I, I love that movie a lot and um I like Danny Boyle's work very much. So but I think that when we when we did it, yeah. Also, we we got a very good deal on the film. You know, we were very like, and it added a discipline to what we were doing. Well, well, I mean, obviously, the novel the, the novelty now, looking back on it in, in 20, 2021 eyes, is that there's a genuine organic quality to the screen. Yeah, which you don't get now. I mean, you can put filters on, but it's not film, is it? <laughs> no, it's it's not the same for sure. You know, I don't. I hadn't really. I had still had no idea what cameras were, what what the lenses were really at this point. I was still, you know, trying to. You know, I basically drew everything. I drew every shot. I had fucking ring binders full of each shot, but not not each like camera position, but each edit. Yeah. In you know, which I never used ever. Seriously, but I did do it. All. No, I never looked at it. No, once I've done it, I, because the thing is, is you can never really do that unless, because unless it's a really technical scene, because you know you can put positions in and stuff like that, but you want actors to be able to move around and not be. I need you here for this and that and that. You know, you want actors to be able to do the scene, and then you work out how to film it. How, how, did, how did you? How did you overcome the sort of with the sort of limited resources you, you would have been playing with? How? And you talked about like use of car headlights and stuff. How did you manage to get get so much out of sixteen mil? What what would what were some of the things that you and you and Chris Ross were were doing to make it effective for? Oh, I mean, to be honest, it would all have been Chris Ross. Okay, so I didn't know, or you know, it was all handheld. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is when you're making stuff, and I found this on the film we just did with Neil, mm-hmm. you can spend two hours doing something, um, you know, and taking your time and that. And then suddenly you've got to do another scene, which is a page and a half and you've got 40 minutes <laughs> and you shoot that scene too. And, but you just shoot it quick. Right. And at the end of the day, what you need out of those scenes is the story. Now, whether you've shot 15 different, sizes it's irrelevant or you still you whether you shoot one size all you're really trying to do is to get that character to say the lines and for us to believe them Mm. you know 
editing can help of course it can but realistically you just need to tell the story it gets to the point where you get to and you can try loads of stuff when you've got a bit of time but then it gets to the point where you, you're very much like we just need to tell the story now so spoke to lucky mckee about making the woman and his dlp was they were going through what they needed to do and his dlp was going well we can do that or what i can do for you is we can put the camera here looking through these doors and windows or whatever and people can come in out of frame and we'll get everything from one shot and he's like fantastic and suddenly it wasn't only it wasn't only effective it was also making the film more interesting because they were rising to a challenge that was born out of time as much as it was about how creative can we be yeah it would have been uh i think there's so many things involved in all the things you've done which uh, which turned out to be very um good for the film or the project but which are completely born out of accident or mm-hmm. being forced into a situation so you always go with those can can you can you can you cite an example for us of, of of what we see on screen and what what you remember it being like born out of a happy accident we only spent one day in brighton or two days so one night in brighton <laughs> seriously yeah um and the first day we got there where we shot them on the beach and paddling in the water and stuff like that. And it was a really sunny day. And the next day, it was absolutely shitting it down. Um, so all the stuff I planned about how they did this and they walked around and it was all great on the beach and stuff like that at the ditch. And so I was rewriting it in the, in, on the morning. Right. trying to work out what to do we were filming and they were all sat on that they were sat on the park bench outside and she's asking her to drinking coffee out of a polystyrene cup yeah and then basically we i said cut on the last shot they were like how long have you got left and they were like about seven seconds so i said just let them i said right you two, why don't you just let the cups go that second text, and we'll just film them going, film them blowing in the wind for seven seconds until the tape ran out, just because we could. And then a lot of people were very much, I mean, it's, it's so indicative of them blowing in the wind. I think where it takes them, whatever. But a lot of people talked about that. Yeah, a lot. This is this is it. I mean, I think the the famous story of that is that is uh, Kurosawa's. Well, the car factory was on the left, and the airport was on the right, and they couldn't be in shot. When people talking about why a choice of a choice of shot was made, it's. It, it, but I suppose there's a there's a subconscious at play, isn't there, that you're doing as much as it's ha- the happy accident only happens because of what opportunity you've created, as much as anything else, isn't it? And obviously the the, the actors have been working with you, so they've got an instinct for what might work as well at this point. Well, I think you know. Luckily, we were all so green that no one knew anything. I think they trusted me in terms of what I would say in terms of notes and so on. And that was great. But I think in terms of, you know, we were all just finding that out what to do and working out how the best way of getting it, of getting things done when we had no time and money. And, you know, it was all just such a learning thing. Can we go to my grand's then? Where is she? Devin. How am I going to get you to Devon? Train. That's what I was going to use the hundred pounds for to get the train. We'll sort something out. 
Right. Come on, let's have a fag. Bring my mate up, get round there, let's get showered. Logistically speaking, then, what 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 represented the sort of biggest sort of practical challenge making London to Brighton? Getting from one place to another because we were moving locations continuously. How disparate were your locations? How split did you say? Yeah, how disparate? Yeah, oh, all over the place. You know, people were traveling. You know, people were coming in to work on the tube, things like that. Hungry. Mm-hmm. We were all very very hungry. Um, I mean, listen, we weren't fucking famine, but we were, you know, we were working hard and we were hungry. Also, things like not being able to get a train. I remember, yeah, I remember that Bluebell Railway, which we managed to get, which is like a, you know, someone just goes back and forth to show you a bit of something, like a Mm. tourist thing. And we managed to get it and, but we could only do it in the day. So we had to keep it in the station, black it out and use a light going past it. <laughs> you know, just sort of swing the light through it. Just always trying to work out how we could do stuff. We only had one co- one of each costume. One day, some, we lost one of them, you know, an item of clothes. It was mainly to do with time. Time was the biggest thing because you're rushing so much. But there'd be things like we can't shoot out this wind, you know, you know, like the the house in Brighton, for example, is the same. Yeah, is two doors away from the house where it gets the gun, which he says, "Fucking nice, love this flat." Yeah. So you've got them outside in both of those houses, but obviously you can't show them that. So we just the way we do that. But I remember, for example, you know, this is cutting corner at its finest. Um, that Chris Ross, we were doing. Uh, a, a tracking shot, a vehicle shot. So we were filming Sam's car driving. And the only way we could do it, because we couldn't afford camera trucks or anything like that, was one of the crew members had a, a Volvo estate. And basically, we lifted the boot up and tied Chris to the back seat with his back against the back seat, staring out the back of the car with the camera. And that was how we secured him. Gee whiz. You could take the royalty shooting around King's Cross, but but um, turning up, making a feature film, shooting around Waterloo and the like, what what were the challenges there and how did how much of that was... Oh, no, you got, we got permission. We, we, you know, the, I was going to say, so that was all done, that was all done properly, as it were. Yeah, no, it was all done properly. And that, but even when it's done properly, obviously, you know, there, there are still challenges because it's still a wide open public space as much as you've got finished this. How, how do you work around the practicalities of a of an urban environment that's very much never stops, which is obviously part of the character of your film? Oh, we had security. We had a couple of security people for those moments. Okay. So you essentially are like kind of holding off bits of little bits of London that still want to get about while you get your shot and stuff. Yeah. Where was your world premiere and, 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 and what do you remember of that experience? Um, okay, so can I just add something before that? Sure, you can. Basically, we were, what happened was we were trying to get money for another film, mm-hmm. right? And we started to show people like a selection of scenes. 
And from a selection of scenes, we started to get people going. Like, I took it into the film council. And they mm-hmm. were like, and at this point, we didn't really have the money to finish it. Like, you know, for the post-production. And I remember showing them these scenes. And that wasn't why we were there. And they were like, where's the rest of this? What? And they were like, and so suddenly they saw these scenes and everyone was like, we need to see this. How can we, what, you know, we want to get involved. Da, da, da. Oh, wow. And so I'm, you know, at that point, I'm like, fucking hell, man. Either it's really good. I've got a massive crisis, in, you know, imposter <laughs> syndrome. You know. But suddenly you're like, it's fucking, yeah. And then we started to hear people really like, then there was a bit of a bidding war. And at this point, mm-hmm. You know, not a massive bidding war, but like a lot of people wanted to be the distributors and stuff like that. So it was just all so weird. And then it got into the Edinburgh Film Festival, which for me was like, I didn't know anything about festivals. So I wasn't really aware of any of it. What we, you know, we were all planning to go down. And basically I'd heard it was in the paper. Wendy I did a story on, it was doing a story on the festival. And in this story, she said, I've just seen Sean Connery flipping out. We watched this film and just was saying how amazing it was. And so it's like, okay, so it was beginning to get a, a bit of a buzz about it. And anyway, we went to the festival and, there was a, and we had the first screening that night. And I remember a, a, a guy called Richard Jobson was doing the Q&A. Mm-hmm. And we started to see the odd review. Coming in, and people were like, "It's fucking amazing, dude!" And I was like, "What?" And it started to feel a bit, you know, that to me was very weird. And I remember there was someone saw Peter Bradshaw going into the screening, who's the critic for the Guardian, mm. and they were like, "Fuck, man! Oh, he's going in. He's really tough." And then that night, I saw someone introduce me to him. Someone said, Oh, you gotta go meet Peter Bradshaw, he loves the film. And then Peter Bradshaw was like, I fucking love your film is so amazing. And then now I got introduced to Sean Connery, who was like, Your film is so amazing. I just couldn't really believe it. You know? Um and what's weird is in people, you know, in terms of like five stars and things like that, you know, when people get five stars from a magazine or whatever. You know, I can't our film got so many five stars. And the major outlets, you know, the major print news and so on. It was it was one of the best reviewed films in recent times in terms of like 41 stars out of 45. And in a way, as soon as that happened, I knew I would not be able to achieve that again. So it was almost like I looked at I looked at it as my career was just going downhill from this point onwards. You've made never mind the bollocks. Here comes the sex pistol. I, I just was like, it's not going to work, is it? Because I'm not going to be able to achieve that again. So it really sent me on a fucking complete, as I said, a complete imposter. How? I mean, I mean, that's. I mean, that's. A, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you were able to share that with us because I think a lot of people would 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 perceive success and, and praise as being there. There's a moment where you jump on everyone's shoulders and they toss you around like you're a. Like you're a, no, I literally was like, I remember reading 
I can't remember. We got five stars in one of these, in one of the papers. And I remember speaking to the guy about it, the the, the press, uh, the reviewer, about you know he did an interview with me, and I said, when I read that review, I started crying because oh, wow. I was like, I'm not ever gonna, I can't. This is unsustainable, you know. Um, that's how I felt because the thing is, I've not had any training. I've not had any. Um, you know, I basically would always perceive myself as someone who was fairly lazy and not focused. And yet suddenly we'd managed to achieve this thing. And I found it would be, what's the word I used to think it was? Um, I, couldn't re- I couldn't take credit for it. So, so when you're reading Bradshaw, right, Williams's film is 120 <laughs> degree proof filler with storytelling nous and technical flair. You're thinking, well, I'll never do that again. No, thanks very much. That's brilliant news. Yeah. Amazing. I was no, I was thinking, I, fu- I don't even know how the fuck I did it. <laughs> I don't know how I did it. So how can I do that again? Thinking I just didn't deserve to be there. My own issues. This is but mm. just literally thinking. I just felt uncomfortable about it all. I just it was it, you know, and in a way, it's sad because you know, obviously, I'd reached a you know, it, it was quite unheard of. To, for that to happen because literally I'd come out of nowhere you know and the film had come out of nowhere and it got you know and it all you know for one without trying to be you know I don't mean this in a sort of like blow my own trumpet way but it sort of launched it, it sort of invented a kind of low budget micro budget way of making films a, a bit it, because after that lots of films were made in that way and people felt that it was you could do it. People thought you could make a film with no money if you really believed in it, you know. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, because it kids, because the, 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 the mid early noughties became this almost like the badge was how little did you make it for? I look, you know, obviously thinking back now about all the different things that happened, oh, what a fantastic experience. And, you know, life changing film, complete life changing moment, man. Mm. And I wish I could go back to the innocence of that time of uh, being green and having everything that happens to you be the, a first. First time you go to a festival, you realise people giving pain for you. And you're like, what? Yeah. Just odd. Agents fucking fawning over me in Toronto. <laughs> you know. But also aware that it's all bollocks. You know, know, I I look back at that film and I haven't seen it for a a while. I remember last time I watched some of it, I was like, fucking hell, this is bad. You never did. I did think that some of the dialogue was wrong and, yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad I got to uh, have this conversation with you about it. It's, uh, it's, it is it is a nailed on sort of is a classic in his own right. It's um, I know, and that's you know, and that's and I've got the poster up in my room, and people still talk about it. People still say I love that film. I'm like, mate, I've made fuckloads since then. <laughs> <coughs> but the fact that you know we, we made a film that changed a lot of people's lives in terms of that who worked on it, mm. and. You know, and I also know that, you know, people were doing it in A-level, people were doing it in film studies and so on. And, you know, again, without being all like, I am this, it was, it really, 
I know for a fact that it made a lot of people think they could make a film. That could be a bad thing or a good thing, but yeah, I know that's what happened. I think that's a good thing. Being from a kind of working class area, when you see when you see a film that that lives in that lives at, like next door and behind the curtains, and it could be in it could be part of the the real world, and yet it still has the heightened energy of a movie. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it does have that, and you had people talking about it, like Paul Greengrass coming up to me going, "I loved your movie," and it just seems it was odd, you know, and but. The thing was, is it, 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 yeah, I just, it was, it was just a bit, it was just a moment really. And it just made me, made me think actually, I, maybe I'm not fucking shit at everything. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're not. One question I've always wanted to ask you ever since I first saw the film when it came out, um, and I feel quite privileged now because I'm sat here talking to you, um, is no matter how many times I watch it, I'm still wanting Kelly to have a, a happy ending. Now, I think, Quite possibly, she's got a happy ending in the sense that she gets to survive another day. No, she goes out and carries on. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. She survives another day. That's her happy story, isn't it? Her happy ending is just surviving another day. And that would have been wrong any other way. I think, to be honest, you know, she, once, she's, once she's taken Joanne to that place and she comes back, I think the only good thing is that she doesn't have Derek to deal with. Yeah. That's probably it. I, I, and you know what? There was we shot a, an alternate ending where she got into a car and drove off and threw the teddy out the window. But I think that it was it also when you leave it open like that, it's like what can, people can make up their own mind of what they think. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it just it's just that great thing of when a film's got you as much as it has. You're no longer watching a film. You're I'm watching Kelly, and I'm thinking I want Kelly to be happy now. <laughs> You know, which is kind of pathetic given how many films I've watched, but it's testing me to what happens when you watch your movie. Yeah, well, that's great. Thanks, man. You know, I think I, the fact that people liked it was just great. You know, and I met my wife that way, you know, from doing, taking it to show at a drama school. How weird is that? That's amazing. Well, look, sir, I've taken up enough of your time and I'm very grateful. Mate, I'd talk about it, but, you know, I haven't really talked about it for this long for. For a very, very long, yeah, I haven't talked about it for a long time. No, it's been great, and I, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I always, I always think it's always a privileged thing for me to do to get a chance to look under the hood of the film, and um, certainly one I enjoyed as much as yours. Um, so um, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Oh, mate, you're a legend. Thank you very much. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. 
They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.